Hi, this is Smriti Kirmanandan, your host for Health Forward Podcast. One of the most important things you can do for yourself is to take care of your health. Your road to discovering an all-inclusive, empathetic, and innovative healthcare ecosystem starts right now. Obesity is a growing concern in America. With 36% of our population being obese, healthcare costs are increasing significantly. Approaching obesity with empathy by understanding the root causes, driving the right strategies to reduce healthcare impact, and improving quality of life are critical to making Americans healthy. Is the future of America looking skinny? Joins me today, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, who is an obesity medicine physician, internist, and pediatrician at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Stanford, welcome to Health Forward. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So Dr. Stanford, what has inspired you to be in the field of health? Well, my dedication to the field of health really starts um, from my really early origins. Um, at the, around the age of three, it was at that time that I decided that I wanted to become a physician. And the reason why I wanted to become a physician is I recognized even at that very early age that one's health dictates how they navigate um, their space and place in the world. And obviously, as I've gotten older in my 40s now, I can guarantee you that one's health dictates how we're able to live our life. Are we able to live life to our fullest? Whenever our health is compromised, for whatever reason, we recognize our inability to navigate space in the same way. Something as simple as a common coal compromises our ability to just do our daily activities. So you can imagine when we have complex chronic disease, how that can have huge impacts on our ability to really live our life to the fullest and be who we're meant to be here on earth. The U.S. spends around $1.4 trillion in treating obesity. The Treat and Obesity Act of 2021 recognized obesity as a treatable medical condition. What are some reflections here? First, I want to uh, you know, start off by saying, you know, you gave a large dollar number. You talked about that $1.4 trillion spent on obesity, but technically that money is spent on the treatment of obesity-related disease, not the disease itself. And a lot of this stems from our inadequate training um, that happens in medical schools, residencies, fellowships, nursing programs, PA programs, et cetera, throughout the United States and the world at large. What we do know is that obesity is a chronic relapsing, remitting um, disease. And when we recognize it as such, then we can begin to actually take care of the individuals that have this disease. And we're talking based upon 2018 numbers. I must emphasize that that's the most recent information we have. We're talking about 42.4% of U.S. adults. And so that's important for us to know. Now, when we look at this, this number, we have to think about which, you know, this treatment of obesity. Right now, only 2% of individuals that meet criteria for metabolic and bariatric surgery here in the United States actually get access to surgery. So that's only 2%. And then with regards to medications or pharmacotherapy that we use to treat the chronic disease of obesity, only 1% of individuals get access to medication, which means that only 3% of individuals are actually getting advanced therapies. I can guarantee you that $1.4 trillion is not accounting for that number. When we began to treat obesity as a disease, when we actually passed this bill, the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act that's been introduced before the House and Senate continuously since 2013 and has not yet made it across the, the House floor or the Senate floor, 
um, which seeks to do two things. Number one, to cover the work with the dietitian um, with regards to optimizing one's diet as it relates to health status. Currently under Medicare, if you want to work with a dietitian and you have the disease of obesity, that is an out-of-pocket expense to the person that has obesity. However, if they subsequently develop type 2 diabetes, which is unfortunately um, part of that continuum and what could happen, they do get that visit covered. Second, right now under Medicare Part D, pharmacotherapy, which is medications used to treat the chronic disease of obesity, are completely excluded, which means that we are unable to utilize this in the Medicare population, which is largely older adults, 65 and older. Um, of course, Medicare sets the standard for all other insurers, including private insurers, employee-sponsored insurers, and also Medicaid. Until Medicare makes a major shift, we can continue to see our failings and continue to see rising health costs associated with those chronic diseases associated with the key disease here, which we're talking about, which is obesity. These numbers are quite disturbing, Dr. Stanford, and it's important that the audience hears these numbers and they know that this bill is in place. A lot of them are not aware of this. So thank you really for sharing. More than this, the other issue we face is bias in this space. Obesity yeah. is not just caused by laziness or poor eating habits, as you know, you're well aware of. It's also caused by psychological reasons, socioeconomic and other factors. What are some approaches you are practicing to reduce this bias? Well, first of all, I think that we should respect and acknowledge that we have a variety of individuals that come from a variety of body sizes and body types, and that we shouldn't treat someone just based upon, you know, what they look like, what aesthetics they have, what based upon often European ideals um, to determine their value, their worth, their ability um, to, you know, contribute to society. Um, much like um I want people to treat me just as a human, not necessarily because I'm black or woman or whatever it is. Those, I guess, characteristics that definitely define who I am should not be how the world interacts with me. Now, we do know that weight bias is one of the most common forms of bias, um, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. And it's second here in the U.S. only to race bias. Um, and what we recognize there is that we do have these, you know, preconceived notions or thoughts about individuals that have this disease based upon a variety of factors. Our poor understanding in healthcare of this disease, media's portrayal of individuals that have excess weight, um, and this lack of recognition of the important contribution of genetics to the disease process. What we do know is that if parents have the disease of obesity, of which we talked about almost half the population, and we know that almost half of pregnancies are unplanned, although that may increased status post the recent SCOTUS decision, um, what we do know is that there is a 50 to 85% likelihood that a person, a child will have obesity, even with optimal behaviors, if their parents have obesity. And by optimal behaviors, I'm saying, you know, dedicated um, approach to diet. And what I mean by diet is um, healthy foods, you know, minimally processed, uh, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, um, for example, um, lean protein, um, things of that sort, um, high levels of physical activity, optimal levels of sleep, all of these things you can do. But if you have those parents that contribute to your genetics, you can imagine how that can have a huge implication, particularly with that high heritability. And so what I think we have to do when we're thinking about weight bias is we have to recognize all of these factors that play a role and not judge a book by its cover. And by that, I mean, not judge a person based upon their external appearance and the excess 
fat or adipose that they appear to have um, as they're walking down the street or as we're interacting with them in their, their in places of employment or places of worship or wherever they are. Um, the goal is to treat them like a human being, to treat them exactly how we would want to be treated and if we do that, I think we can make some major strides to address the tremendous weight bias that exists in healthcare and throughout all facets of society. I love your answer, especially because what you're really asking for us to do is bring in an empathy lens, but also view everyone with an intersectional point of view than just based on their weight or their, you know, what you see is what you get kind of a mentality. So just love that, you know, brilliant answer from you. This brings me to my next question is that, there's a lot of processed foods in America, such as sugar, corn, and soy. What are some nutrition policies you believe we need to implement to elevate us from this kind of a dietary space? You know, I, I want to throw this in because I think this is a key issue that I like to address, but I want to address it probably a little bit different than the way you asked it. So I think it's important that we don't conflate obesity policy and nutrition policy. Um, often we presume that nutrition is one of the major factors associated with obesity. And while it is a contributor, I would argue that we have over probably 90 plus additional contributors and we hyper-focus our attention there at the decrement of any other focus. So I'll say that first um, out the gate. Um, when we're looking at the nutrition policy, I do think some policies can change that may have small, measurable, but very small, I think, shifts in weight status. And that is, you know, um, looking at subsidies surrounding, you know, highly processed foods, of course, um, focusing on the type of nutrition provided within the school system, particularly in the public school systems, where we tend to have lower socioeconomic individuals who also happen to have, on average, higher levels of obesity, and unfortunately, are also often coming from racial and ethnic minority groups here in the US. What we have seen, for example, with regards to menu um, labeling, particularly in terms of calories, is that it does not make a huge difference in terms of the weight status of any individual. And we've seen actually weight go up even with the introduction of menu labeling. So I would say that we can focus on some of those things, but we have to actually develop obesity policy here in the US. And currently, there is no obesity policy in the United States, despite it being amongst um, some of, you know, one of the top countries in terms of the prevalence of obesity. Other countries have actually sought to tackle obesity, but we lag far behind. And I think when we're looking at obesity policy, we began to expand beyond nutrition and look at other factors that contribute to obesity, you know, high levels of stress, trauma, racism, for example, social determinants of health, um, issues with access um, to um, the built environment space, that's a healthy built environment space, all of these things are things that we have to think about to really develop complex, and that's, I think, probably why we don't have the policies, but complex obesity policies to actually, for the first time ever, reverse the trend of the rise in obesity that we really begin to, to really track in this country in the 1980s. So what are some innovations you have seen in the industry to address obesity? Well, there are multiple modalities. I think the things that, however, that have the highest level of efficacy, we don't use. And that's going back to pharmacotherapy, um, i.e. medications to treat the disease of obesity. What we have to recognize is that obesity is a disease of the brain. And it's in the hypothalamus that we as individuals regulate our weight. It's not based upon our willpower. It's how we signal. Either we signal down an optimal pathway, which is the POMC or the proopial melanocortin pathway, which tells us to eat less and store less, or 
We signal down the alternate pathway, which is the AGRP or the agouti-related peptide pathway, which tells us to eat more and store more. So when we're looking at medications, when we're looking at metabolic and bariatric surgery, we actually act on those pathways. And instead of people struggling to go and diet one, two, three, 20, 25, 30, 45, 60, we actually shift how the brain sees weight. But unfortunately, this is not how we are educated in society and medicine about this disease that is obesity. We are taught that people should just eat less and exercise more. So I think we should utilize therapies that we know actually act on the brain to change how the brain sees weight over the long term. For most individuals, they can go on a diet and lose weight. And most will regain and they'll do something called weight cycling, which means they'll lose, let's say 20 pounds and gain 25. And then they'll go on the next diet and maybe they lose 30 and now they gain 40. Weight cycling actually pushes one up into a higher weight category over time. And so I don't want that weight cycling. I don't care about that acute loss. I care about how can I sustain the loss to generate the best health outcomes. And I'm not trying to get you to a certain BMI or body mass index, which is another thought process that I think is overemphasized. I'm trying to get you to the happiest, healthiest weight for you based upon your overall cardiometabolic health. And that's what I really strive for. So I think those treatments and modalities are underutilized specifically as we look at the high level of efficacy of these therapies. Now, this is really fascinating. I've been in the health, wellness, and nutrition field for close to a couple of decades now, but I'm learning a lot from just the specific answer. And what you're really asking for us to do is to think out of the box and not to fall into the structures where we've been seeing obesity with the same lens for so long. So Dr. Stanford, there are many silent pandemics that have been going on. Do you believe that obesity is one of them? And what do you advise individuals to do to be more proactive in this space? Well, absolutely. I don't, I don't think of obesity as a silent epidemic. <laughs> pandemic. I think it's one that's been here. It's been um, raising the alarm year after year, not only here in the US, but around the world. Um, we've seen global rise in obesity rates. And actually, if you look at where the US is ranked, we're ranked in, ter- in terms of countries with obesity around number 12. Everyone assumes that we're number one. And yes, we are high 12. There are a lot of other countries, more than 12 countries, obviously. But you know, it's, it, it shows you that this is not just an issue that's focused here in the U.S. and that this is a global issue. And until we begin to really make some major strides to address the disease that is obesity, we'll continue to falter. I do want to highlight one key important point, particularly as we're hopefully nearing the latter portions of what we consider to be the COVID-19 pandemic. What we learned during the pandemic is that obesity was the number one risk factor for both sickness, i.e. morbidity, and mortality, i.e. death, related to COVID-19, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. And the reason why that was is because obesity is a chronic inflammatory condition. And when it interacted with the acute inflammatory condition that is COVID-19, it was the perfect storm. And so what we know is that people that have history of obesity have a 6.9 higher likelihood of having both sickness and death associated with COVID-19 compared to those without the disease. That exceeds diabetes, that exceeds heart disease, it exceeds many other diseases that are often obviously significant problem, significantly problematic. So when we 
continue to just really poo-poo and shove off obesity is just, you know, something that people just need to get over and just do better for themselves. I think we have to recognize that we have to look at the health of our country as a whole. And when I talk about, you know, almost half of adults and over 20% of children having this disease, I do believe in prevention, but how do we not, how do we not, you know, pay attention to those individuals? I think we have to recognize when we're dealing with overweight and obesity, the numbers continue to rise with adults we're talking over 110 million adults here in the US with the disease of obesity. That is no small number. Why are we not being more aggressive and treating this disease that is leading to poor health outcomes? And going back to that initial question you asked me, when we look at the health of an individual, we recognize that the health is compromised when someone struggles with this disease and it's not being treated adequately. And I would say that's not, it's not being treated adequately more than 97% of the time here in the US. Do you believe food insecurity and obesity are closely linked with each other? Oh, absolutely. I do think that they're they're very linked. And I, I'm going to go to a, a, a more personal story because I think that this will help elucidate part of why I see that the linkage, obviously the literature confirms this. Um, my parents have overseen a food pantry in the Atlanta, Georgia area for over 27 years now. Um, obviously, when we're looking at food pantries, we're looking at obviously low socioeconomic status. This happens to be in the Southwest Atlanta area where I grew up and was born and raised year after year, year after year. And we receive donations to help provide to individuals that are food insecure, that come to this pantry on a weekly basis on Thursday um, to receive food for the week. But when we look at food insecurity, what happens is the brain, when it sees scarcity, which is often in this food insecure space, the brain does something really important that has helped us survive. And when it thinks a famine is coming, food insecurity is obviously not a famine, but let's, uh, let's uh, make it akin to that. The storage of adipose or fat actually goes up. The reason why it goes up is because the body is stressed. The body wants to do whatever it can to hold on whatever fat it can because it wants to protect itself because it recognizes that there is not consistent food on board, particularly consistent healthy foods. And so when we look at food insecurity, I think we have to recognize that this goes to deeper roots of really addressing inequality, um, inequity. Um, here in our country and ensuring that individuals, once they're born into this world, have access to proper nutrition, proper nutrition that's sustained, one that in which a person doesn't have to wonder like tomorrow will they have food to eat and have to conserve in such a way that maybe they do turn to highly palatable foods that do maybe make you feel full acutely, but then ultimately lead to other, you know, worsened chronic diseases. But how can someone really be food secure, even if they're going to collect food from a pantry like my parents, when they have no stovetop on which to cook, when they have no oven in which to cook, when they have nowhere to refrigerate anything, these are the things that would allow them to be healthy. And so it's really a systemic issue. It's not just providing them with the food. What are they going to do with the food if they're housing insecure, which is often um, the case. And so I just wanted to bring these things up um, because I think this is a complex issue that it's going to require complex solutions. Um, but I think that we can begin to address it once we recognize the systemic nature of um, these inequities and how they do play a role in obesity. Thank you for sharing your personal story, Dr. Stanford. Evidently, you're an equity champion. What are some initiatives you're working on to drive equity to the core of healthcare? 
know, a lot of my equity initiatives are really looking at the workforce and looking at the workforce, not only from the part of physicians, but also scientists, et cetera. What we do know is that um, if we look at research that's being produced, evaluate disparities, particularly in the nutrition and obesity space, because that's where my expertise lies, we know that individuals that are more likely to want to study and, and provide solutions for communities that um, are marginalized um, are those that are from racial and ethnic minority groups. But interestingly enough, the NIH and the NIH has said this themselves, so I'm not saying anything that you can't find on their website today, tends not to fund um, investigators that come from underrepresented backgrounds. And there are multiple reasons why this is, but when they've done a deeper dive to really look at why is there such a gap in funding from investigators that want to study disparities to improve it in the communities which they were often born into, it's because when we when study sections at the NIH and other nonprofit organizations evaluate disparities, they see that as less rigorous. And when science is seen as less rigorous, it means it's less likely to be funded, which means that if you're a Black investigator um, and you want to study these disparities, and we found that Black investigators are more likely, for example, to want to discover these um, disparities, they can't get funded to do so. So they're sitting there like with these ideas, having been born and raised in these communities where they want to go and make a difference, but they're unable to do so. Similarly, the AAMC, which is the American Association of Medical Colleges, has tracked for years who's most likely to serve in underserved communities by racial ethnic group. And by no surprise, Black physicians or Black medical students who then subsequently become Black physicians are more likely to want to serve in underserved areas. But the number of Black doctors has only changed by 4% in the last 120 years here in the United States. And I'm going to say that again so the people that are listening can hear that 4% increase in Black physicians in the United States in the last 120 years. Now, there are systems that made that happen. The American Medical Association um, released the Flexner Report in 1910, which sought to close all Black medical schools, with an exception of two at the time, and that was Meharry and Howard Medical School. When they did that, Black physicians that were seeking to train to care for often their communities were not allowed to do so because we were not accepted at PWIs or predominantly white institutions. That didn't happen until the latter portions of the 60s, early 70s, when we could begin to attend those institutions. And so you can see that 50 to 60 years went by where Black doctors were only trained if they could get into one of those two medical schools with limited spaces and limited funding, which has set back the health of our country altogether. What steps are we making all together, and not something I can do as an individual, to change that narrative? And I would say, not very much. The pipeline to medicine is very, very leaky. I was able to make it through, but many were unable to. And as one individual, while I have a voice and I have this platform, for example, even today, I am just one. And I'm recognizing that the burden that my community experiences is so much greater than me as one individual. And so we have to be thinking about what we've done or the disservice that has been done, not just to feel bad about ourselves, but to make significant positive change. And I actually feel like while there's forward momentum, there we're moving at glacial pace compared to what's needed to rectify these issues.
That's really disturbing and fascinating at the same time. The metrics, how far we've come, and absolutely grateful that you're here on this show. And that brings to my last question is, if there are three takeaways for the future of health, what would that be? So three takeaways for the future of health. Um, I'm going to make some some big overarching statements here. Number one, we have to recognize the chronic disease that is obesity. It is by far the most prevalent chronic disease in human history. And we don't treat it as such. We treat it as a vanity issue. We treat it as something that someone did to themselves. We don't recognize the complexity of the disease. And so we don't treat it. And so healthcare costs continue to rise, not only related to the obesity, but all of the obesity related diseases. So we're not treating the elephant in the room, which is the disease causing all of the diseases. I take significant pride and pleasure in not getting my patients to a certain weight. They will tell you that, that I will never give them a target weight because I really don't care. I want to get them to the best health. So I said the happiest, healthiest weight for them. But I take significant pride and pleasure in removing diagnoses from their chart. It's actually my favorite thing to do when I'm caring for my patients because I believe the treatment of obesity to be really the only disease process where I can move multiple diagnoses as I treat the disease. So that would be my number one take home. Number two, equity matters. When we look at individuals here in the US and around the world, we are not all given the same level of respect and dedication to understanding disease within our communities. In order to do this, this will require us elevating and propelling forward those that are likely to study in the space of disparities and equities and working to address with the complex systems that have driven these inequities over time. And, and number three, health is something that all of us desire. But in order for all of us to achieve it, we have to recognize that there's different nuances that are needed to address it within different subsets of the population. We should not use a cookie cutter approach to addressing disease and promoting health, recognizing that even cultural backgrounds may look different in terms of how individuals view and how they receive health and health care. And so let's recognize the heterogeneity of this and move forward accordingly. Love these pointers. Dr. Sanford, thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for listening. This is Health Forward Podcast, and I'm your host, Smriti Kirbanandi.